Where and in what year was the first NOS? Oh, that one, I, I'm going to guess Indiana in the... This is where fun things happen? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm LC, and I'm a storyteller. I'm a passionate chemist who loves to explore and tell stories about how chemistry can change the world. And I'm Danny, and I'm LC's spirited chemistry co-host. I love to bring high energy and positivity to my chemistry, but also my life. Welcome to the Farm to Table podcast. We're two chemists working at the pharmaceutical company Merck in the U.S. Also known as MSD everywhere else in the world except Canada, the U.S., and its territories. And this is a podcast where we'll tell you stories about the people and the science behind the papers published by our chemistry group. Each week we'll pick one to two papers that we recently published and introduce you to the key people behind it and also ask them to give you a unique insight into the story behind it. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're starting uh, actually a special series on the podcast. For the next uh, three episodes, actually, we're going to center on the theme of nucleoside chemistry. And what we've laid out for you is three different topics um, related to nucleosides, highlighting four or five different papers. And so we're really excited today to have Steve Silverman from our Discovery Process Chemistry Group in Kenilworth. And he's going to tell us about a 2020 science paper entitled A Short De Novo Synthesis of Nucleoside Analogs. And this is actually a collaboration that uh, we did uh, along with um, Rob Britton's group at Simon Fraser University. So Steve, welcome to the pod. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, great to be here. Cool. So Steve, um, you know, I think it's only appropriate that we introduce you to our listeners. Um, first, we wanna offer you a hearty congrats on your, um, you know, ACS Early Career Investigator Award. So congrats for winning that. Thanks. Woo! Um, okay, so would you mind, um, you know, telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do at Merck, and maybe a fun fact about yourself? Oh, okay. Well, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm a uh, process chemist uh, in the in the Discovery Process Chemist Group in Kenilworth. Um, I have been uh, in I've been at Merck for uh, a little over seven years, um, primarily working uh, in Discovery Process Chem. Um, although I've done uh, some time in the projects group and in catalysis. Um, I uh, have done some fairly uh, uh, extensive work in modalities, and um, as and kind of outside of Merck, uh, I'm involved uh, in the American Chemical Society. I'm the program chair, um, so you see my name uh, on a lot of uh, ACS meeting type uh, uh, type. In- you spam us. That's basically what you're trying to say. <laughs> Steve is the wizard behind the scheduling that happens for the organic division. So all complaints can be emailed directly to Steve Silverman at Merck.com. Right? <laughs> um, and uh, I'm going to be co-chairing the 2023 NOS. Yeah, that's really cool. So naturally, we need to have a little bit of fun. And with that, that means a quiz <laughs> to, twist, to test your knowledge. And actually, it's not going to be about nucleosides. It's going to be different. It's going to to probe your ACS expertise. Yeah. Okay. So here it is. Are you ready, Steve? We got a couple questions lined up and I, I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Okay. 
How many folks are members of the ACS? Uh, around 150,000. Jeez, 155. That's pretty good. I'm impressed. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, where will the spring and fall 2023 national meetings be? 23? Um, <laughs> one is Indianapolis. I think the other is San Francisco. Damn. Two for two. Okay. <laughs> he knows his okay. stuff. Yes. Um, since you are the co-chair of the NOS, it's time. And I must say, I went on the NOS, um, whatchamacallit, history page. Very well done. I don't know who did that, but. Was, uh, I, well, I'm not sure who actually made the site. Brian Myers and Joe Ward are the webmasters, and they compiled a lot of that information. It's phenomenal. I, I encourage folks to check it out to learn about the history of that uh, conference. Okay. Where and in what year was the first NOS? Oh, that one. I, I, I'm i going to guess Indiana in the... This is where fun things happen? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, there's just been a lot. I guess I guess just um, statistically, there's been a lot in Indiana. So that's, that's what I have to go with. 1925, Rochester, New York. Oh, okay. totally wrong. And Ooh, this is yeah. this so is, obvious. This okay. has come up <laughs> at, at meetings, and I, I, I should have known that. Name, well, now you're going to know it when you're the co-chair. You People are going to ask you this stuff, and you'll be like, I know now. How many times has the NOS been in New Jersey, our favorite state? Twice. Good job. Yeah. So the subject of our podcast today is, you know, about how to explore nucleoside diversity that would be amenable to SAR. But, you know, many folks who are listeners, um, we don't have viewers. And so would you mind, I guess, like walking us through what a nucleoside even is? Just the like the bare basics. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, I would say at a high level, um, nucleosides are, you know, very privileged molecules um, in, in biology and medchem. Um, you know, they're pervasive in natural biological processes uh, as well as in therapeutics. When, when you think back to um, the first, you know, HIV treatments, AZT, they were nucleosides up through, you know, uh, common structures or they, 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 common drugs that you hear about today, like molnupiravir, eslatrovir, remdesivir um, are all nucleosides. So structurally, um, they are uh, a class of riboses. So they're five-membered ring sugars. Um, they uh, have a nucleobase, which I think, you know, we're familiar with, uh, uracil, thymidine, things like that, adenine, um, guanine, uh, at, at the anomeric position. And then they have alcohols, uh, around the ring at the, at C2, C3, and C5 in natural, natural nucleosides. Beautiful. I can see it now. So, um, you know, the origin of your collaboration with the Britain Group, I think, goes back a couple years. And I want to, I guess, ask LC, can you tell, tell us a little bit more about, you know, how this project got started, ultimately? Yeah, it's, it, it's actually a pretty interesting story um, and one that I think is um, somewhat emblematic of the way we think about, about investing in sort of fundamental chemistry at Merck. So um, in the summer of 2017, um, we held what we called at the time a... Uh, Global Chemistry Summit, where we asked all the chemists at Merck, whether they were in MedChem or in process chemistry, to sort of bring us your problems. So it was like, hey, what are things that don't really work well? What are things that are still problems for us? 
uh, that we think we should invest in as an organization. And uh, ended up being a big, you know, full day brainstorming session. We flew in people from all over our sites here in New Jersey. And really, there were four major themes that came out. One was CH activation. One was uh, the ability to make and break some challenging bonds. Uh, there were a lot of biomolecule functionalization topics. And then the fourth topic was nucleoside or nucleotide synthesis. And um, when you look at the data, you realize that, you know, when you look at nucleoside SAR, a lot of it happens at positions that are easily functionalized uh, using traditional methods. And so what that means is that the backbone of the ribose uh, can sometimes be really, really difficult to functionalize. So to give you an example, four out of five uh, nucleoside analogs are based off of a ribose scaffold, um, and very few have substitution for like a sulfur, a nitrogen, or a carbon in the scaffold because those are much, much harder to make. So it was clear from a ton of nucleoside projects, and Steve just mentioned how important they are uh, as potential drugs, that um, this was an area that we could potentially invest in in the future. And that was just sort of the first seed of like, hey, this is an area that we might want to invest in in the future. And then I think ultimately what happened, uh, which was very serendipitous, is, is maybe about a year later, I got an email from Rob Britton, who is a professor at Simon Fraser University. And uh, and Rob and I go way back. Actually, Rob, Rob actually worked at Merck Frost in Montreal um, for a while before he took his faculty position. And he and I had collaborated on a completely different topic uh, when I was in the catalysis lab. And he just sort of reached out and said, hey, like, I have what I think is proof of concept for something that could be useful to make nucleosides. Do you think this is something that would be interesting? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it was sort of like a big aha moment for me, you know, like, wow, uh, this is exactly the kinds of things that, that we care about and it should be really, really important. And so I asked Rob sort of, you know, why it was that he reached out in the first place. Like, was there something that he was looking for on our end? And so, you know. Did he know I, I, about the summit, I guess? He did not. He did not. So, I mean, for the podcast, I basically emailed him and said, hey, like, send me your thoughts. Like, you know, looking back on it now, like, what were you hoping this would lead to? And, 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 and what, you know, what ultimately do you think, um, do you think this is? And so we'll play a clip of that right here and then, and then we'll come back. So when I first reached out to, uh, to LC to, discuss a potential collaboration on this project. This actually was based on the fact that, uh, that I'd known LC for several years. We'd worked together before in some late stage fluorination chemistry that we'd applied to the synthesis of fluorolucine, which is a, a building block that, um, that was used in the production of uh, odanacatib that was, that was a clinical candidate at the time of our earlier collaboration. So we had a history of working with the process group quite effectively. Um, we had these new insights on making nucleoside analogs and we thought that it would be a, a, a natural fit to try and uh, to connect our, our academic research with an industrial partner. And so with regards to insights that we were hoping uh, that Merck could bring to the table, first of all, uh, we felt that the, uh, the industrial knowledge or the internal knowledge at, uh, at Merck would help guide us in the selection of targets, maybe to make more relevant nucleoside analogs. Um, we felt that the process group had the capacity or the capability to scale some of this work up, which would, uh, which would help us in, in assessing the robustness of the chemistry. Um, and also, it's you know, one of the really unique things about working with an industrial partner is they often have access to, to different collections of building blocks than we may um, through, uh, through internal resources. And so we, we figured that um, through working with Merck, we might get a, um, access to a different collection of nucleobases 
uh, that we can incorporate into this chemistry to really assess the scope of the uh, of this new reaction. All right. So, Steve, one of the first things I did when I got Rob's call was basically reach out to people in the organization and say, "Hey, there's this collaborator. We we've worked with them before. They have a they have proof of concept for this. Uh, anyone out here interested in sort of collaborating with this person?" Uh, and 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 you came forward, and so I'm really interested in hearing sort of what motivated you to take this on. Yeah, so I mean, I guess I would say I I you know, this is a class of molecules that that I've always you know had some interest in just because of the fact that there are these you know they they're they're so you know pervasive as I mentioned um, throughout you know throughout biology and, and medicine, um, and you know structurally they're just interesting to you know to to work with because they're they're small they're very densely functionalized. Um, chemistry on them is always a challenge. Um, and then my first couple of projects here at Merck, uh, I, uh, worked, uh, we're, we're both, um, part of the HCV, uh, family of compounds. So they were both, you know, fairly challenging substituted nucleosides, um, uh, uridines in that case. Um, and they were just, you know, just really interesting, uh, in terms of the process chemistry that was being developed. Um, and, you know, then uh, a couple of years later, I had the opportunity to do a rotation um, in our our Boston discovery uh, discovery process chemistry group. Excuse me. Um, and one of the major programs that I worked on at the time was called Pure MT Five, and the um, you know the structures that the team was interested in um, were you know really challenging um, you know non naturally occurring uh, uh, nucleosides and. You know, basically every part of the molecule uh, had been modified around the ring, the nucleobase. So basically, Steve, you couldn't make these from ribose. Exactly. Okay. So you couldn't take a naturally occurring nucleoside, even the, uh, you know, even uh, the nucleoside containing the desired nucleobase and, and manipulate them. Oosh. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, everything, um, you know, even making a, a small structural change involved going all the way back to you know, a different starting material, working through, you know, a 10-step synthesis, you know, protections, deprotections. And in the end, you would end up with basically a, a very similar compound, an analog of what you already had, maybe inverted at, at, at one of the stereo centers. Um, and, and, you know, and you just got us thinking that, you know, there, there's got to be a, a better way. And, you know, so Elsie and I had talked about that, and that's when the Rob Britton collaboration uh, was just coming to his attention. And, you know, it was something that made me very interested in this. LC, I would like to ask you, uh, as someone who has, you know, been a leader within our discovery process chemistry group, what does drug discovery need? Yeah, I mean, when you think of syntheses <clears throat> that are great for drug discovery, you want to have expedient access in short synthetic sequences, right? So that's why uh, technologies like cross-coupling have become so popular um, and, and, and emerging methods like photoredox catalysis, right, where you can assemble fragments very, very quickly from readily available materials. That's kind of what you need in drug discovery. Now, in the context of nucleosides, as Steve alluded to, you can do SAR on the base um, at the anomeric position, you know, using typical glycosylation chemistry. But once you start wanting to do SAR on the ribose scaffold, it gets very tedious and long. And so we were looking for a method that would enable us, enable us to have some sort of late-stage access to modifying different positions on the nucleoside. And we were particularly interested in the two-prime position on the sugar and the four-prime position on the sugar, which are sort of typical, meth, typical um, 
substitution patterns that you see in these types of nucleosides. So Steve, why don't you give us a, a little bit of a background of, you know, where we were when all this started with the method? Well, so, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I guess when, when we started, you know, Rob had, had come to us, you know, he had uh, a, a really great proposal. I mean, the, you know, this is, uh, you know, starting with the nuclear base, pretty much exactly what we wanted. Um, and there was proof of concept uh, on, you know, a, a number of, of uh, kind of known nuclear bases, as well as some uh, either natural products or, uh, uh, or, or therapeutics. Um, but it hadn't been, you know, completely generalized at that point. You know, we really wanted um, to expand um, into more, you know, drug-like chemical matter. So, um, you know, we were, I mentioned an oncology project. You know, there were a lot of structures that had modifications all around the ring uh, for that program. And, you know, we really wanted to see what we could do to, to streamline that. Uh, we were also, you know, uh, still looking at, at hepatitis C and other antivirals. Uh, that we thought, you know, th these, you know, really could could be nice access into into all of these. So I guess logistically, how does this all pan out? Rob is on, you know, beautiful, you know, BC. We're in beautiful New Jersey. <laughs> how does this, uh, you know, all work? Coast to coast. Coast to coast. Yeah. So I mean, it, it certainly was, you know, a, a challenge. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, when we started this, we were all, you know, really excited about this chemistry. Um, and and for me, this was actually my first time involved in in this type of collaboration. So you know, not only did we have the you know the time difference, the geographic challenge, we had the international uh, challenge. You know, so you know, I think um, you know, we all realized that that you know there these were going to be um, you know, significant, significant obstacles. But we also were aware that, you know, this really had a lot of potential in terms of redefining nucleoside uh, analog synthesis and enabling um, SAR studies. So it was a bit of an undertaking. I mean, we made sure uh, to, you know, communicate frequently. Um, you know, we had, team, we have team meetings. Um, uh, to this day, we have team meetings, you know, every, every couple of weeks. Um, there was a, a grad student, Mike Meanwell, who was the primary, uh, uh, the person that I, I was uh, working with is now a postdoc in Phil Barron's lab. Um, and, you know, we were pretty much, you know, making sure to stay in, in, in continual communication. We email every couple of days, any, any new findings. Um, and, you know, I, I, we also were able to um, choose to, you know, work that or choose work that was, I think, best suited for, for each location. Um, you know, I was able to do things like scale ups and screening. Um, uh, you know, because we have those capabilities um, here at Merck, uh, Mike was able to 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 hit the nuclear the nucleoside scope, nuclear base scope, really hard. Um, and you know, but I, I would say you know, really the the communication ended up proving you know just just a key uh, you know key thing that we had to that we had to make sure to to, to keep doing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fun, right? Because when you when you touch base like that every every couple weeks, you you kind of see the progress as well, and you also get to see where the problems are. And and often we would sit there and be like, oh, we can help you guys with this. This is something that that we can sort of um, you know remove some some barriers. I mean, and Steve was also able to 
provide intermediates, right? We could send things to them uh, so that so that we could, you know, things that are a little bit more in our wheelhouse in terms of scale up so that they wouldn't have to sort of bring up batch and stuff like that. So uh, I love those meetings. I think those are super exciting meetings where you kind of get to see the freshest results. And, and um, you know, it's not something I get to do a lot anymore. So I always appreciate those. It's a lot of fun. So Steve, I mean, I don't want to get into a whole bunch of the details that are in the paper because the listeners can just go and read it. But what I'm interested in is sort of maybe things that aren't in the paper in the sense that like, what were you surprised by? You know, because when when we write papers, we pretend like everything was planned and everything was perfect. <laughs> um, but but in real life, right, there are results that that were like, wow, like as, as we start exploring this, you know, there are some unexpected things and maybe some really interesting takeaways. So I'm interested, you know. Based on your experience working on this, what was maybe one of the most surprising and, and, and maybe interesting things that, that ultimately we found? I mean, you know, I, I think just kind of as a general answer, you know, the, the enormous like utility um, and, 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 and the scope of what you could do with these molecules um, was what was most interesting to, or, you know, most surprising to me. I mean, I think that um, you know, at the beginning, we had this target of being able to assemble uh, nucleosides with, you know, complex substitutions uh, at various positions around the core um, using any nucleobase. And that was that was essentially an aspirational goal. And as we got more into this, you know, and this is some of this is shown in the paper kind of in that last structure. But um, as as we got into it, you know, we started realizing, not, you know, we could you know, just, you know, we could do other things with these that we didn't expect. And I, I would say the biggest surprise to me um, was the locked nucleic acid. Um, and that's, that's, that's shown in the paper. And, you know, I, I think, you know, this is something that both Rob and I had had a number of conversations about, you know, would it be possible to use this method through, you know, just a single additional step uh, to make a locked nucleic acid? And, you know, we thought, oh, well, this would be essentially an entirely different project. Uh, you know, this is probably not stuff that's going to go in the first paper. Um, and, you know, but, you know, so we made the, the precursor substrate and, and it turns out it just took a few experiments and sodium hydroxide, just a simple Bronsted base was, was all it took. Um, you know, we just found the right conditions and it was essentially a quantitative reaction. And so, you know, I think findings like that, you know, that, that, some of it, you know, were, were kind of, you know, based on the, you know, these, these, these compounds that were, you know, highly dense, you know, densely functionalized that hadn't been made before that, you know, you wouldn't even expect to be stable in a lot of cases and that you could take them and, and modify them um, in ways that just hadn't been tried before. We also asked Rob the same question. He had very similar thoughts. Let's hear what he had to say. Yeah, so there were lots of things that we uh, that we found um, were quite surprising as uh, as both the the Merck group and our own group um, looked further into this uh, the reactivity of these aldol products and the formation of these aldol products. I'd say first and foremost, I have to admit I was really surprised with how scalable this process was. So uh, the Merck group was able to uh, quite quickly demonstrate that this process could be scaled to about three quarters of a kilo of uracil. Um, through the steps to the aldol product without uh, any real major differences in yield than what we'd seen on, on an academic, so gram scale uh, synthesis. Um, as well, I, I think I was, I was surprised by how broad the scope of this chemistry was. So uh, several nucleobases were investigated at Merck that we hadn't looked at. And uh, 
Um, and Steve Silverman, who carried out the uh, the work at Merck, was able to show that we could cyclize some of these compounds with uh, with Lewis acids uh, rather than bases to make um, some rather unusual uh, nucleoside analogs, including a, a diazo adenine containing uh, nucleoside analog. Um, and so the takeaway I'd say from my side was that these types of collaborations are really valuable. I think having having uh, exceptional scientists from different sites working on the same project brings different perspectives, um, really different uh, different long term interests in the project and different goals. And uh, and ultimately, in this case at least, it, it you know I'd say I'd say our approaches complemented one another, um, and it certainly led to a, a more valuable product in the end. In the second half of the paper, you get into what I like to think of as the weird substrates. You know, you take it to crazy town, which is, I think, really <laughs> exciting because you're starting to like push, you know, where like where this chemistry can take you. And I loved how you showed access to four prime and two prime analogs and some crazy bicyclic nucleosides as well. I guess, how did these other, I guess, targets come to be and why are they significant? Well, so, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh... In terms of the you know C two C four modified uh, structures, that's that's essentially like where where we had hoped to get with this paper. You know, could we you know not just you know make single substitutions? Could we make these very complex structures? Could we make you know deoxyriboses? Um, and it turned out you know that 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 we could, and that's that's you know what we had hoped to do. And then you know we got to thinking, well, what 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 are the next steps? Um, you know, where can we go with this? And we realized that you know, hey, we have these intermediates that you know, in addition to just the reduction cyclization sequence, um, can really be used for for a lot of other things. And you know, I think uh, LC had alluded to this earlier in the podcast. Like, you know, what if you just want to compare the ribose to the thioribose to the uh, amino nucleoside to prolidine? Um, that's something that it, it's really something that you, you can't just easily do. And now, you know, from this intermediate, there, there's potential to do that. So, you know, we show in that paper that we can um, do reductive amination and then cyclization uh, to make the amino nucleoside. So now we can compare, um, you know, uh, what the ribose would, you know, uh, the, the, the oxygen to the nitrogen, the ribose to the prolidine. Um, you know, I so I think that was interesting, and then you know we know that these are are highly congested stereocenters. We knew that that uh, alkyne just through through you know through modeling was was very close um, in, in kind of the bottom structure. Um, I should say the C four substitution, the C two substitutions are close together. So we thought, well, you know, could we make them react with each other? And that's how we ended up uh, with the proof of concept of of the LNAs and the, and the first bicyclic structures. Was that gold? That, I mean, that was that was just an, an amazing find. Like I, I uh, like the, the the truth is like I didn't want to believe it. I was like, this is like this, it couldn't have happened <laughs> this easily. Um, so I took it to the NMR group and uh, Ryan Cohen and Zhao Wang uh, took a look at it and they're like, yeah, this is you know this is what it is. I mean, and not not only was it you know could could the structure um, you know the, the LNA structure with the exocyclic olefin be made? It was highly selective like it was a spot to spot reaction they looked at the nmr we saw like a little bit of other other material in there and they're like oh yeah that's just the endocyclic bicyclic so it was like it didn't even you know you didn't even like you know it wasn't even like a, a reaction that had to be like you know separated from the starting material it was just spot to spot it's it's a classic version of the what you think is going to be the most difficult part of a project turned out to not 
be difficult at all, right, Steve? I, like I feel like there are there are elements of this which which were much more challenging, um, and then this one which we sort of had as a pie in the sky thing. I mean, to give to give our listeners, um, you know, a sense that locked nucleosides typically require like dozens of steps to make, right? Like twenty five steps. Like it, these are these are really challenging things to make, and. Um, you know, in our case, it ended up being really trivial. So, I guess it's a list. It's a lesson for all the graduate students out there. Like, don't talk yourself out of running those experiments because every once in a while they go your way, and and they can lead to really impactful results. Like it was the case here. I guess I just want to clarify. When I said, "Is it gold?" I meant the locked nucleosides. Is it a gold catalyzed reaction to make that? <laughs> That's what I meant. So, so it is not. No, it's just sodium hydroxide. Um, I, you know, I had all, like, I literally had a plate set up with, you know, a bunch of different Lewis acidic metals and gold was obviously high on that list, ready to screen. Um, and in making the starting material, that's when it actually, that was the first time we saw the locked nucleic acid, um, because you cyclize it just using sodium hydroxide. So it all, ha you know, it didn't go to completion, but we were just like, oh, I wonder what this byproduct is. And, got it. Got it. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I was just curious. Like, I was like, no, I still want to know. Was it gold or not? <laughs> so. and, and that's actually, we never actually tried it. Like, I wonder, you know, I mean, if in other cases, that's something, you know. We... I think gold does crazy stuff. I would try yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. well, it's also intermediate. Yeah, like my first QM at Michigan ever, I was like a first year, and there's some gold catalyzed stuff from um, the Zane group. And I was just like, what in the heck is this? Like, what's going on? Like, I don't know. Just, it, it's, I'm fascinated by it. It's very neat. <laughs> uh, all right, Steve. I mean, obviously, this is an ongoing collaboration. We're still working closely with Rob and, and actually a whole bunch more students now. We, we were able to secure uh, additional funding through a partnership with CQDM. And uh, recently, there was a second paper published in Communications Chemistry. Like, we're going to link the paper um, in the podcast description, but you want to give us kind of the 30-second overview of, of, of where that paper sits with respect to the chemistry we talked about today. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So it's largely an expansion uh, of the scope of the reaction. So instead of focusing on, um, you know, specifically on nucleosides, we're, we're looking at glycomimetics. So basically, these are, you know, complex carbohydrates, and they can be made through, you know, somewhat um, similar sequences. Um, but basically, instead of using, say, an aldehyde derived from a nucleobase, you can use uh, an aliphatic or aromatic aldehyde. Um, instead of just the electrophilic fluorination, um, we found that that's generalizable to, you know, to, to chlorination, bromination. Um, you can install sulfur, you can install nitrogen. So really just exploring um, each area uh, of, of, you know, each, each component of the reaction, seeing how, how general it can be instead of the dioxinone, which uh, we typically would use to uh, uh, unveil the, the 3,5-diol functionality, we could use substituted cyclohexanones and their derivatives to make uh, fused nucleosides or fused carbohydrates, um, which, uh, you know, if you look at uh, you know, the, a recent Merck MedChem PRMT5 paper, you'll, you'll see uh, these fused carbocyclic nucleosides that are of, of interest. So really, you know, we wanted to show that, that the scope could be very much generalizable to all sorts of non-nucleoside or nucleoside and non-nucleoside carbohydrates. 
so Steve, we asked we asked Rob sort of, you know, where do you see this going? Where do you see this 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 chemistry going? So we'll play you a clip of of his reply uh, right now. Yeah, it's a great question. We have so many different directions that we're taking this chemistry now. So so what we've found is that having this carbonyl, so essentially after the aldol reaction, we're left with a carbonyl at what becomes um, a critical position in the nucleoside core, the ribose core of the nucleoside analog, uh, which is called position four. And having a carbonyl there uh, directly in our, in our synthesis allows us to either functionalize that position with nucleophiles or potentially engage the adjacent centers, so what would be C3 or C5, uh, in other types of chemistry, so uh, generating enolates or, or enol sal ethers and reacting these. And so uh, these are things that we're looking at now. So how do, we, how do we use the inherent reactivity of these aldol products to rapidly generate analogs at C3, C4, and C5? And I'd say we've, we've had a, um, a fair bit of success in recent months in doing this. And so I'm really... Uh, I'm really excited about uh, our ongoing collaboration with Merck in this area and uh, and reporting some of the results in the in the near future. So, Steve, I'm interested, sort of, as you look to the future and sort of the uh, the development of future methods. What are you kind of hoping that that uh, these inquiries will, will take us next? What I would say is is you know somewhat fascinating to me is you know we see you know, non-canonical amino acids making their ways into, making their way into, into peptides and proteins. So, you know, can we do the same thing, um, with these, with these non-canonical nucleosides? Um, you know, you think about like, you know, the mRNA vaccines, right? I mean, they use, uh, essentially a, uh, a uracil analog, right? You just have a nuclease rotated to C-linked, um, uh, substitution for, for uridine. Um, so, you know, could we make oligos? Could we make RNAs from, from these? Um, what is their potential? I think, I think it, it really fascinates me. I mean, there's a ton of different directions that this could go in. Very cool. Absolutely. Okay, Steve, thank you very much for, um, you know, taking the time to sit down with, with us and share all of your cool chemistry that you've been, um, you know, working on with Rob. We really enjoy it. So thanks again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Cheers, folks. Thanks for listening to the Farm to Table podcast. This would not have been possible without our fabulous producer, Mark Partridge, and listeners like you. Be sure to check our episode credits where you'll find more details about the show, as well as links to anything that we've discussed during the show. If you find yourself craving even more info, you can find us both on Twitter. I am at Danny the Chemist, and LC can be found at, at, at Dr. LC Squared. But of course, our show also has a handle, and that is at Farm to Table Pod. Farm with a PH, in case you were wondering, where you'll find some behind the scenes action, future episodes, and sneak peeks, and likely some random posts, posts about chemistry, snacks, and where, well, whatever else. Of course, uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please uh, interact with us on Twitter. Feel free to post any chemistry papers, Merck chemistry papers that, uh, that you found particularly memorable and that maybe you want us to build an episode around. So stay tuned, folks. Because on the next episode of the Farm to Table podcast... Okay, so to break the ice a little bit, get us loose and goosey for um, the rest of this pod, we have a fun quiz that you have not, that neither of you have seen, but will leverage your expertise... So what was not shared is Dan is a home brewer and artist is a fan of national parks. And so we have, through the genius of Elsie, he has merged these two concepts into a quiz, basically. Yes. Yeah, it occurred to me that 
um, it would be really cool to do a quiz where we'll give you the name and you're going to tell us whether it's a national park or a craft beer. 